mission Well, you know We all want to change the world You tell me that it's evolution Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led gardening and a person who's trying to make sure that I'm eating 30 different plants a week. And it sounds hard, but it was actually, I mean, it really made sense to start counting how many different plants. And that, of course, includes oats and grains and legumes and um, seeds. But, you know, most of the food right now in the United States is from annual monocultural farming. And there is so much overwhelming evidence that um, healthy food, a healthy gut requires a diverse diet. On today's show, we're going to talk about perennial agriculture. And with us is Aubrey Strait. Krug, and she is with the Land Institute. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody. Hi. So, okay, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I grew up in a small farming community in Kansas. Um, My ancestors came to the U.S. back in the 19th century from Germany and to farm. And um, the community I grew up in is mostly uh, still dominated by farming. Um, mostly wheat, a little bit of milo. There's also pastures and cattle. This is in north central Kansas. Um, so I grew up in a farming community and really thinking about how dependent we are on the land um, to feed and provide for us. And also really from a young age, also being really interested in uh, what the future of that relationship to place and land looks like and how I could be part of something um, that could be more positive and sustainable. And your grandparents were probably, um, or your ancestors were um, probably farming in a far more diverse way um, than is happening today in that place. Is, is that true? Do you know? I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of different talk on that, that um, some great information about how many different varieties were grown in the 1900s and how it's really um, very few varieties today, of course, corn and soybean and wheat. Yeah, I think that, you know, through the the changes that have happening that have been happening with agriculture, um, different operations uh, used to incorporate more crops, more animals. My dad, certainly uh, growing up in the early part of the 20th century, they were still working with animals in a really direct way. Um, and that's definitely changed over time. Um, so much uh, fewer farmers, fewer people in small towns, um, more homogenous landscapes and crops. And that's true of the way that we humans feed ourselves <laughs> too. We, as you were reflecting earlier on the, the variety of foods you eat, I mean, most human diets now, we rely on a lot less uh, diverse foods um, and particularly rely on just a few kind of major staple grains directly and indirectly to provide a lot of human calories around the world. Now, you have a fun job title. Um, You're the director of Perennial Cultures Lab. So what is that? Yeah, well, if I take a little bit to explain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I work at the Land Institute. And um, for people who aren't familiar, the Land Institute is an agricultural research nonprofit organization. We're based here in Kansas, where I live. And we work with partners and collaborators around the United States and around the world. And 
what we do um, is work on developing perennial grain crops. So the grain crops we've been talking about that um, my family and community has farmed and people around the world rely upon are pretty much annual grains that live for just one year. If you think about, um, you mentioned corn and soy, I've talked about wheat, um, think about rice. And the Land Institute's interested in collaboratively developing perennial grain crops, thinking about how to grow these grain crops um, in more diverse settings and cropping systems so they can provide really positive ecological benefits. We're working to understand how to steward these crops collaboratively with people. And we're thinking about the role that people, cultures, and communities can play um, in sustaining and creating these grain crops and also being sustained by them and thinking about the possibilities for more just cultures that can be sustained in these really positive systems. So as the perennial cultures lab director, what me and my team do are think about this relationship between cultural change and agricultural change. We think about the types of norms and values and meanings and stories that people have in relationship to their food and how they might build those um, in good ways with perennial uh, foods, including and in particularly perennial grains. So um, perennials, um, blueberries and oak trees and um, um, hazelnut trees, those are all perennials, and and um, kale plants and tomatoes are annuals. Um, but but when it comes to the agricultural system and how many calories people around the globe are eating, um, do you have any sense? I mean, I'm assuming that the vast, vast bulk of calories comes from the annual crops, the corn and the soy, but do you have a sense of that? It probably depends upon exactly which sources you're looking at, but definitely the majority um, of human calories, probably between 50 and 70 percent, again, depending upon context and place, are coming to us through these kind of staple grains that humans either eat directly ourselves um, or that are fed to animals who are then part of the human food system. Um, so and if we think about it in that way, like thinking about the differences of the types of plants you mentioned earlier, um, these we do have traditions of perennial foods and all these kind of uh, woody species um, that are really important and wonderful. And there are all kinds of uh, vegetable crops um, that are annual and important too. Um, but grains are basically, if you think about um, the kinds of herbaceous or non-woody um, plants like grasses or oil seeds or forbs, legumes, things like that, that, um, that have really sort of dry, hard, storable seeds that can be harvested kind of in mass. Um, and that makes them a really valuable staple food for people. Um, so the, thinking about the seeds of grasses, as well as, like I mentioned earlier, um, oil seeds um, that can be used, as well as um, all the kinds of pulse crops, um, beans, legumes, um, things like that. So what are some of the advantages of perennial agriculture? Yeah. So maybe we can travel in time a little bit and think about how for really long 
period of time in the sort of deep history of Earth and the, the terrestrial land masses here, the types of um, ecosystems that have evolved um, on Earth's lands have evolved to feature mostly perennial plants that live for multiple years. And they do this by having roots below ground <laughs> that can sustain those plants. So the above ground parts of those plants can be eaten or burned off or might die back. Um, but those living roots are able to allow the plant to regrow or re-sprout um, in herbaceous plants. And woody plants like trees, those roots sustain plants so they can then um, regrow leaves and flower again. So when we think about the these mostly perennial and also really diverse natural ecosystems, um, they have evolved in ways that provide all kinds of ecological benefits because they're kind of powering the processes <laughs> um, that sustain life on this planet. If you think about the carbon cycle, hydrogen cycle, the way that nutrients are moved through ecosystems, that water is used, that plants uh, take in sunlight and are able to grow and then provide the basis for a food system on land. So all of those uh, types of processes and benefits that we want to um, restore and sustain um, are what we're looking to be able to provide in perennial agricultural systems. Because unlike those uh, natural perennial diverse ecosystems, the majority of our um, agricultural systems don't feature um, perennials um, in diverse systems. And instead of providing those ecological services, they have lots of ecological disservices, um, things that we don't want um, in terms of releasing carbon into the atmosphere because of dependence on, on tillage or needing and relying upon um, different types of uh, chemical inputs or just being expensive to maintain in that way through those inputs or having negative effects on water quality things like that nitrates in the so water those are yeah. all things that we would like to address by and and, 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 and the other thing is the vitality of the food now last week we had uh dan kittrich with the bionutrient institute on and i loved That's his right. analogy it's like you know humans we could probably um live if we had a tube you know feeding tubes we can live with feeding tubes but that's not really good nutrition for our guts and this whole idea of fertilizing for um, food is actually um, it, it's not giving us the nutrition that we need um, and it's also having like you say these huge external costs so this whole idea of perennial agriculture um, just makes me feel kind of hopeful and optimistic about the future and I kind of think I really need that right now <laughs> Right. I mean, it, the potential for it is tremendous. Yes, there is a lot of incredible potential and the Land Institute and partners and collaborators have um, really been working on developing these perennial grain crops um, and developing the kind of proof of concept that something like a perennial grain could exist for decades. And really incredible progress has been made um, with a pretty small amount of, of people and resources invested. So I think that with um, kind of increased collaboration and um, investment and understanding and public awareness of this, um, it might be really possible to grow these perennial crops into solutions that we need um, and to create food systems that are more diverse, um, more nutritious, more sustainable and resilient to the types of 
um, disruptions and catastrophes that are only intensifying um, in our um, warming world. And of course, that also holds more carbon in the soil. So it's a solution. So we're going to take a break. Um, we're going to be back shortly. And uh, like I know one of your partners is University of Minnesota's Forever Green. So I'd love to hear more about your other partners. And you've got a new project that's starting, uh, the Perennial Atlas. And you're looking for people to get involved and helping to study perennial grain. So um, we're talking with uh, the Land Institute. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led gardening and um, and a prudence um, and, and perennial agriculture is something that's so exciting. Um, and um, I mean, it's it's also a, a daunting task. Um, so with us right now is Aubrey, Aubrey Streit-Krug, and she's with the Land Institute. And you guys have a big project coming up, Perennial Atlas. So tell us about it. Yeah, so the Perennial Atlas is a civic science project. And for people who haven't heard that term before, you might have um, be familiar with citizen science or with participatory research. Civic science is just a method that we use to work with people who aren't professional scientists and invite them to join us in the process of scientific learning um, and research uh, to work on understanding and creating these future perennial grain crops. So in our civic science projects, people grow um, small plots of these future perennial grains in their backyards or home garden or community garden, um, sometimes in uh, school settings, and help collect data and share that back um, about how these different plants are doing in those places. Um, they also uh, join with other people and other places to learn, um, to share experiences and share their stories and feedback with us. So it's kind of scientific research in a community um, and learning and kind of creating these stories of relationship um, for multiple years since these are perennial plants. So we're going to learn so the more. Perennial Atlas project is us um, inviting people across the United States to grow small plots um, for several years and to help us create an atlas, like a set of maps, understanding how these different future crops are doing in all these different places. Um, and I know you have a Lunch and Learn webinar um, Wednesday, November 8th. So um, so you're looking for um, schools, uh, maybe some churches with some land, farmers perhaps? You, you want to tell me a little bit about the people who could um, help you. Uh, so and, and, and what do they do? They actually start growing some of these perennial grains and then they how, how, what do they do? <laughs> yeah. So everyone is welcome in the project. You uh, might be someone who has experience and interest in gardening or agriculture, or you might be new to it. Um, everyone um, is welcome in that way. And yeah, sometimes people are teachers. Sometimes we have stay-at-home parents um, who want to do this with their kids or grandparents who are doing this with their families. We have community gardeners who interact with their communities around this and also just interested individuals um, who are would like to get to know these future perennial grains. They might have heard about them or read about them, but it's different to be able to see them up close and get to know them um, and be able to contribute to the scientific work. 
So people go to our website and fill out an interest form telling us a little bit about themselves, where they are, um, what they're interested in. Um, they can also attend, you mentioned that we have a webinar um, about this particular project, kind of informational, so people can learn more about it. Um, that's happening next Wednesday. So if you go to landinstitute.org, you'll see the event page, a listing for this, where you can click and sign up for the webinar. Um, and there's also a page with information about the project if you want to watch a little video about it or learn more. But basically what happens is that in the spring, people who are part of this project will get a, a launch kit in the mail uh, <laughs> that has all the educational information and instructions they need. It will have the seeds and seedlings, instructions about how to create your plot, signage for that, and some of the different tools and resources that they'll need to collect data. Um, and then people will also join our kind of digital platform, which has an app associated with it so that they can um, watch videos and instructions about how to gather that data. They'll actually plant the, the seeds and seedlings, take care of them, you know, water, weed, the things you would do in a, a normal garden setting. And then they'll take photos of their plants. They'll collect samples and mail those back to us, harvest things at the end of the season. They'll notice what seems to be working and not. Maybe they'll see some possible disease and need to take a sample of that. They'll take soil samples. They'll monitor kind of what's happening, um, share that data back with us um, online. And then, like I said, through mailing stuff. And then throughout the growing season, we're kind of synthesizing the data and sharing back those results with people so they can start to see what's happening in other places. People can join community calls and talk with and meet with other people in the project. Um, and then at the end of each season, we compile and return those results so people can understand what we learned, what they learned. We get feedback about what worked well and what we should change. Um, and then the next year, the project starts again when the plants reemerge above ground. Are you also looking for commercial farmers to participate in this? This particular perennial atlas civic science project is really designed to be a small scale garden scale project. So the plot size isn't very big and it's meant to be open to people. And these are kind of future crops. So we're not growing them at a scale for production in this particular project. We're kind of researching how they do in these different settings. And I should mention that um, the this particular perennial atlas project, we're especially looking for people um, across the U.S. in several different regions, we don't have a civic scientist or a lot of civic scientists yet. And those include the Northern Great Plains and the Great Lakes region. So certainly welcome people to, to sign up and share interest. Other places that we're looking for people include the Northeast and the Southwest right now. And I don't know but how much- the Land Institute does work with commercial growers and people growing um, particularly Kernza perennial grain at the production scale. And so- working with uh, farmer partners um, in places like Minnesota, as well as Kansas and Montana and other states. And so um, how much space do you need? Um, 15 by 15 yard, uh, feet? Yeah. So for the Perennial Atlas project, these small garden scale plots, about 15 by 15, and people can have one or two of those in their in their backyard setting. Cool. And I know um, this is like raking season and some people are like really tired of raking. And so there's some conversations like, you know, you really should switch over to natural gra grass. So would this be an appropriate thing if someone was looking at maybe um, trying to add a natural area to their um, lawn? And, 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 and will the person need to like rip up their grass and, and till it? I mean, how do you how do you uh, how do you do that? 
It depends upon what um, is in your lawn or setting. Um, it is possible to um, plant some of the seedlings uh, into grass, but there's certainly an aspect of bed preparation. And since this is a research plot, it's also you know having little uh, plots within the plot of these different species. So there's some kind of organization. It's it's going to look like a research plot, not a not, <laughs> not a wild prairie, um, which I think might be important for people to know. But um, you also might expect some uh, with the plot and with the signage around it. You might expect some. Uh, good conversation starters with your <laughs> neighbors and family and friends who see that. So how do you get selected if you want to have, if you, if you want to do this and what type of work um, would be, um, do, do people need to do? So as I mentioned on the Land Institute's website, you can find our civic science interest form and you can kind of fill that out and share a, about yourself with us and share which uh, plants you might be interested in. Perennial Atlas isn't our only project. We have some others going right now and we'll have other ones in the future. So depending upon where you're located and what your interests are, this may or may not be the right fit, but we hope it is. And then as we are getting people to fill out the interest form, we're making selections based uh, kind of geographic diversity. So we have room in the project to support up to 250 civic scientists. Up to 200. So we're going to have to take a break and we'll be right back. We're talking with the Land Institute about um, getting people involved as citizen scientists to move forward perennial agriculture. So we'll talk about what plants and some more details coming up. Uh, You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and uh, I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us today is the Aubrey Strait Krug with the Land Institute. And uh, again, you have a new project going the Atlas, uh, the Perennial Atlas, um, and you're looking for citizen scientists to be involved um, to to um, well, you have very specific plants you're going to be plant. So tell again if someone wanted to participate, what's involved in that? Yeah. So going to the Land Institute's website, filling out, reading a little bit about the project and filling out our interest form or what you should do to express your interest. And then as people across the United States express interest, we make selections from that group based upon geographic diversity. So we want to make sure we have people in a lot of different locations across the United States so we can create that kind of atlas or set of maps about how these plants do. Um, And then the project involves uh, a variety of different uh, perennial and some annual uh, plants as well. So the plants we're working with for this project are a perennial oil seed um, named Silphium or Silflower. So this is Silphium integrifolium or rosinweed. It's a native perennial prairie plant. It's kind of part of the sunflower family. And we're really interested in working on creating a perennial oil seed crop um, with this. So Silphium and then annual sunflower to be able to compare. Then another plant is called Sanfoin. Um, so the species name here is Onobrichus visiifolia, and this is um, a perennial legume uh, that's being grown as a forage crop. But we're really interested in it as a kind of perennial pulse crop, so like a bee. Uh, a perennial uh, like legume. A I mean, that could just be revolutionary yeah. <laughs> in so many levels, right? I mean, um, a perennial legume is, um, and and so there, so that is a that is. Um, 
you can can if someone um, someone wants to just grow that perennial legume right now and not even being part of the science, can they? So yes, people who are interested in sainfoin grow sainfoin, um, especially in the kind of Intermountain West as a forage crop right now, also as a honey crop. And what the Land Institute is doing is working on domesticating this um, so the seeds uh, can be used for human consumption. So really uh, both silphium and sandfoin are really pollinator friendly plants that provide these ecological benefits. And we're interested in them being tasty and nutritious human foods um, as well. And I think we it, it, we have to keep, I, I know your website has some beautiful information about this as well, but the wonderful thing about perennial plants is that the roots go so deep and those deep roots are a natural carbon sink. Yeah, so if we think about the these like deep and living roots and the kinds of processes that they're involved in, um, in moving down into soil, holding onto soil, um, and interacting with the microbial life um, to exchange uh, energy and nutrients, and the process of those roots moving, seeking, holding, and exchanging allows uh, nutrients um, and elements to kind of move into soil. So um, thinking about the turnover of those roots, the way that they live and grow and die, but continue living is where you start to see um, the ability of them to bring carbon back into soils, um, as well as uh, you more efficiently use other nutrients and water. And so this, uh, so this atlas, uh, you're, you're testing three different types of perennials. Uh, one is a perennial legume, one is a perennial oil seed, and then also a perennial um, flax. Yeah. So uh, silphium, sandfoin, and then perennial flax is the third kind of plant um, that we're working with. And this is in collaboration with partners of ours who are uh, working on perennial flax. Um, so that is, uh, this will be the first project that uh, we've done with civic science and perennial flax. So I'm really interested, introduced, in excited to introduce people uh, to this particular plant crop. And then it will be accompanied by annual flax. So the kind of idea for this research design is to have the, these three perennial uh, plants and crops along with their annual counterparts so people can um, look at them in comparison to each other. And we can also look at some of the differences between the way these perennial and annual um, plants and crops um, behave and respond to these variety of different uh, geographic places and climate conditions. And um, and so um, um, and, and and there will also be some annuals. So, do you know exactly which plants are going to be, or does it also vary for um, geographic area? I think that um, we do know that we'll do for the annual sunflower, kind of a counterpart of silphium, uh, soybeans as a the legume counterpart, and then there's an annual version of flax that will accompany the perennial version. Okay, and so if somebody wants to participate in this research project, they also get a small stipend, but they should also expect some work to do. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely um, some care work involved, um, as any uh, gardener and uh, plant lover will will know, just in terms of getting the the research plot set up and then maintaining it, you know, watering it as needed to help with establishment, doing some of the weeding around these different plants, and then going out and making observations and collecting data. So um, learning about what's happening and being involved in data collection, those things do require time and effort. 
Um, and in to recognize and support that work, we provide all the materials. Um, we provide the different instruments and things like that, that people need to collect data, provide shipping labels so that it's easy to send things back to us. Um, we're on hand to answer questions and we provide a lot of different educational opportunities. And we also have the budget to provide um, small stipends for people to hopefully make it easier uh, for them to be able to participate. Great. Um, is there anything else people should know about this um, uh, uh, perennial atlas uh, program? I would just encourage people to think about some of the rewards that might go along with the uh, the labor of gardening, the chance to get to interact in a kind of firsthand, hands-on, sensory way and see these plants uh, live and grow and change and flower and produce seed over time can be really rewarding and fun um, for a lot of different people, a lot of different ages, um, people who have a lot of different backgrounds. Um, so it's work, but it's also really fun to be able to get to know these plants and to be part of the kind of scientific research community. So if that sounds fun to you, this project might be a good fit. Yeah, it sounds perfect for a school. Um, and so, so talk about, again, let, let's put the perennial agriculture in context. And, you know, there's the state it spends a lot of money on um, academic, on agricultural research, which is great. But this citizen science approach of getting a lot of people involved because a trans Transition to perennial agriculture could be so darn powerful on so many levels. I mean, um, and 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 so tell us some of the current success stories around perennial agriculture, the the ones we can buy on the market right now. Yeah, I will. I want to underscore the point that you made, which is that you know we might think of agriculture as um, you know something out there. Um, out there in the landscape, and if I'm not a farmer directly, it doesn't. It's separate from me. But all of us are eaters and are part of the kind of food cultures of agriculture. So agriculture impacts all of us, um, and through the food we eat, and through the ways that it shapes the world that in which we live in, um, socially and ecologically and economically. So think thinking about the relevance of um, agriculture is really important. And to create more sustainable and perennial agricultures, that means a lot of different people have really important roles to play. Of course, you think about the people who are plant breeders and domesticators and ecologists and researchers, but also people who are doing uh, the work of teaching and learning, engaging in their communities, building the kinds of supply chains and businesses and partnerships that make this work possible and that make agriculture possible too. So. Um, and the artists and storytellers who are thinking about and helping us think about the ways in which we find meaning and value in this work. So there's a role for a lot of people to play in this. And one of the um, projects and successes I want to point you to, especially in Minnesota, is the Kernza Cat Project, which is led by folks at the University of Minnesota with a lot of different partners, including uh, folks from across research teams at the Land Institute. Um, so this Kernza Cat project is focused on um, building uh, the work of Kernza perennial grain, understanding and researching and growing this crop, but also moving it onto landscapes with partners um, and into food systems. Uh, so being able to eat and enjoy and bake with and brew with um, Kernza is a really exciting thing. And 
the part of the project that I'm involved in includes uh, the educational work where we're creating a set of um, educational lessons and materials that will be available within the coming months um, at, that will be open access for especially high school and college teachers to um, engage with Kernza in the context of these broader systems. Um, and we design lessons that can be used as you might expect in science classrooms, but also in um, writing and art and history and the social sciences um, as well. So I hope that this sort of educational work and people getting to know um, and learn about perennial agriculture at younger ages and find their role um, in participating in it could be a really exciting thing. Very much so. And um, and so uh, also, um, I want to just give a little bit of shout out to to the Land Institute and some of the other projects that you work on, like Perennial Rice in China. Um, and so you want to just give an overview of the Land Institute and all the other different projects that you guys are doing? Sure. So the Land Institute... Um, it has at its core these um, efforts to to breed and domesticate perennial grains. So this includes um, some of the programs that I've mentioned with silphium and perennial oil seeds, sandfoin and perennial legumes. It includes a breeding program for Kernza perennial grain, as well as breeding programs for perennial wheat and perennial sorghum or milo. And then in addition to these breeding programs, we have a suite of um, ecology programs from soil ecology to programs in the ecology of how you protect crops from diseases and pests and pathogens and study the kind of ecological benefits um, of pollination and soil protection and all the cycles we were talking about earlier of how you create these more ecologically intensive and sustainable cropping systems. Then we have a crop stewardship program, which works on developing the kinds of perennial and sustainable supply chains, working with partners and farmers um, on understanding how to grow that. And the perennial cultures lab that I direct is working on education and learning um, and involving different types of people in this research and thinking about the impacts culturally of the kinds of transitions um, to perennial grains that we're, um, we're seeking to make. And then we come to the international and collaborative aspect of the Land Institute. So um, we work with people around the US and around the world. Um, I'm not sure of the exact number, it's always changing 50 or 60 different kind of research partners and institutions um, to support them in developing uh, perennial grain agriculture in the context of their places and regions. And one of those collaborations that's uh, been ongoing for a long time and has been made some amazing success is uh, the perennial rice uh, program uh, in China that Land Institute researchers have um, perennial in. Perennial agriculture, gonna take a break again. Perennial agriculture, deeper yeah. roots, um, helps with carbon, creates water for perennial agriculture, and it's perennial. So, I mean, it's like, and and, and also this, uh, this nutritional stuff. I mean, perennial agriculture is sort of nature-led agriculture. So we're gonna take a break. Um, we'll be right back. Um, we're talking with uh, Aubrey from the Land Institute. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Pools of sorrow, waves of joy are 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking today with Aubrey Strait-Krug. She's with the Land Institute. We're talking about perennial agriculture. Um, we talked all about the Perennial Atlas earlier, and that's a program to get citizen scientists um, um, across the country, 250, to um, grow um, uh, perennial grains and study them. Um, and so is there anything else you want to say about that um, Perennial Atlas project in case someone's joining us late? I'd say come to landinstitute.org and uh, check it out and learn more. We also have an informational webinar about it um, Wednesday, November 8th over uh, the noon hour central time. So folks can attend that or check out the recording to learn more about the project and if it might be a good fit for them. And so, um, so perennial agriculture is just so ripe. I mean, for uh, these these possibilities, because um, again, those deep roots hold carbon. It's water friendly. It's probably far, far more nutritious, and it's probably the way that life has been working on this planet for a lot longer than humans have been around. Right? The, the agriculture is. I mean, annuals are there too, but perennial agriculture is sort of nature led agriculture. Would you agree with that? Certainly the the ecosystems that have evolved on this planet and uh, been able to uh, sustain themselves uh, are mostly perennial and um, really diverse. If we think about, um, you know, my home region of the Great Plains and these prairies and grasslands of North America um, over the past thousands of years um, that have evolved in this semi-arid climate to be able to be resilient and to hold on to and build soil, the soils that now people are, that are really fertile soils that power our farming um, and our current systems, those have been possible because of the development and work of those perennial systems. And um, I, we only have about six minutes left, but I wanted to make sure I got on this because I loved a sentence about your bio, bio, uh, on, on, your, on your bio. Um, and you have a quote from Wendell Berry, uh, Berry saying, be joyful even though you've considered all the facts. Yeah, that's a quotation from uh, Barry's, uh, one of his Mad Farmer poems. Um, and that advice the Mad Farmer is giving in that poem, I find really inspiring because certainly it's important for people to face and recognize the real challenges um, and crises of this moment and, and engage with the, these facts of how the world is and how people need to change um, in so many ways uh, to be able to, to sustain life across generations um, in the world. But to do that work of, of making better communities and agricultures, we also have to find joy um, in the people and the places around us. And I think that um, I count myself really lucky and grateful to be part of a, a research community of people who are really motivated and inspired to engage with all of the facts, to continually uh, seek learning and understanding, and to work with uh, plants and places and each other to create something um, that in the long run um, could be more viable for us. So I find a lot of joy in visiting the prairie and getting to know these um, perennial grain crops and in participating in these ongoing research processes with them. 
And finding the joy is, I mean, um, I had Jim Embry on, um, uh, and he, did, he he got a Beard's Leadership um, Award this year in food, and uh, um, he's talked a lot about joy and justice and how those are interconnected, and 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 even in, um, and I that's why I love that. That is a very powerful quote, despite all the facts, because we can look at lots of facts that are so darn daunting, um, and and but meeting that. And the other thing I wanted to get in is your personal background. You um, ethnobotany and American literature. So tell us about that. Yeah, my uh, background has been in the humanities and in interdisciplinary and kind of transdisciplinary research. And in particular, it's been rooted in the Great Plains. And so I've been um, really interested in understanding the different ways that human communities and cultures build relationships with plants and sustain them. So that's kind of the ethnobotany part. And then literature is about the kind of stories and, and meaning and values that we create and pass down um, and teach other people. Um, and I think that when I think about our work at the Land Institute and creating you know, uh, kind of cultures of perennial grain agriculture, it's going to involve and it is involving people forming those new relationships um, and finding new uses and finding value and meaning um, and uh, some really tasty <laughs> meals in perennial grain crops. So being able to think about that in that larger context of how this has worked and how we understand this in other settings and in particular places um, and the details of any one of these different plants or crops are really exciting and important to me. And I think it speaks to the ways in which all kinds of research disciplines and all kinds of people um, have roles to play in creating um, more just and diverse and perennial grain agricultures. And um, I, I, I've started, I've been hearing more and more about the need to eat at least 30 different plants um, for health. And um, again, I, I had last week, I had the Bionutrient um, Association, and they're, they're documenting that animals that eat, uh, cows that eat diverse plants are healthier for us to eat um, in all sorts of different ways. And so that diversity is so important uh, for that vitality that we want. Um, and uh, um, so this mad farmer liberation front, Wendy Barrow, but it's also about emotional connection with plants or holistic connection with plants. Yeah, I think that we need uh, science and we need communities and stories. Um, and certainly a variety and diversity um, of perspectives um, is really important um, to, to this work. And I mean, just to speak about diversity, we often think about you know, diversity of foods, but we can think about diversity at so many levels, sort of genetic diversity within crops and then diverse types of crops and then diversity within fields and landscapes and then the diversity of foods and diets and regions. And, I think we recognize that diversity is a needed thing across all these types of our uh, ways of scale and our food system. But thinking about how then, what are the processes by which we can uh, restore and build uh, diversity for more resilience? And I think um, domesticating and breeding uh, perennial grain crops it can be a really important way to, to build diversity within these larger food systems. Awesome. So Aubrey Strait-Krug, um, landinstitute.org. Last minute, anything else you want to say? 
Thank you so much for the interview. And I hope that people who uh, had their curiosity peak will reach out to us and check out the website and um, join the, the research and the movement. I mean, and then I, I, we used to ask people, what is food freedom? Because this seems like the uh, uh, just a, a really beautiful vision of a practical food freedom is to move back to um, perennial agriculture. And move into it anew for the first time and, and with new crops in places too. So I think the both uh, the both and of that are having that ability to to create more options um, now and, and for future generations um, seems pretty important to me. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Aubrey Estrait-Krug uh, with the landinstitute.org. And thank you for listening. And um, thank you for um, all the work for all these years. And uh, perennial agriculture, pretty good over here, huh? <laughs>